You know, it's just been, uh, it's been amazing for me to be blessed by this team of people that brings their energy, their time, their talent, in particular over Imagine Conference, what the kind of spaces that they've been able to create. And in particular, and I know he'd hate me doing this, but I just want to thank you, Pastor Ryan, for everything that you've brought to our church in our creative spaces. You do an amazing job and just bless so many through what you brought through. Imagine I've just got a picture of Ryan at like 1 a.m. on Wednesday night, halfway up that truss trying to make something work. Probably surprisingly accurate, I would say, with a team of people doing a great job. But, you know, we're blessed in our church by those that, that have a passion to create spaces where we can praise God. You know, I want to speak this morning out of a passage of Scripture that's been really transformational in my own life. And one of the reasons I love it so much is because it captures what Jesus is always all about. Now, Jesus, in this particular story, takes an individual whose life is stuck, whose life is stationary, and then through the provision of Jesus, through His miraculous power, speaking to that life that is stuck brings renewal, brings something new, so that stationary life becomes a life of motion and praise. Now, Jesus is always about bringing this renewal in our life. And the story we're going to look at this morning is where Jesus heals a paralyzed man in Luke chapter 5. And I love it because Jesus takes an individual where they're at and renews and restores. You know, that's Jesus' heart for my life. That's Jesus' heart for your life. And we're going to read that story together. And, uh, and it all centers, actually, we'll go back to that, that get up. It all centers around this command for our paralyzed friend, where Jesus gives this command to get up. So this morning, I want to speak into the subject of what it means for us in our lives of faith, in our journey of faith, to respond to the invitation of Jesus, to respond to the command of Jesus, to get up into something new. Did you know God always has something new for your life? Let's read this story together. And we're going to begin here in, uh, in Luke verse 17, and here's how it starts. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. They'd come from everywhere, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. It must have been a pretty incredible day, right? That if Luke, our gospel author, feels that it's necessary to say, in particular, on this day, the power of God was with Jesus to heal the sick. You know, this was a special day. Now, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. We're going to pause in our reading really quick, and I want you to say the word intention. Can someone say intention? Now, these guys, they came with intention, and they, laid, they, they, they came with the intention of bringing their friend to Jesus. Now, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, can someone say opposition? Their intention was met with opposition because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd. In Mark's translation, it says, they dig through the roof and lay him right in front of Jesus. Can someone say urgency? There's intention, there's opposition, and there's also some urgency. Who knows you don't dig through someone's roof unless you're operating with a little bit of urgency. There's some urgency in this story. We're going to keep reading together. Now, when Jesus saw their faith falling from the roof, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. 
your sins are forgiven. Now the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now their observation, their assertion is actually accurate here. God alone forgives sins. What they didn't realize is that God's son, the expression of his being among them, was standing right in front of them. Now Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Why are you thinking these things? We're going to continue on. Which is easier? This is an awesome question, by the way. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk, which is easier. Now, when I first started reading this story, I kind of thought, it is way easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Okay, can we practice that? Your sins are forgiven. It, was, that, was that difficult? It was reasonably easy. This is, this is my thinking, how I look at this. But to actually miraculously heal an individual that is paralyzed, that's crazy, That's the power of God miraculously intervening. So at first when I read this, I think here's the comment that Jesus is making. It is way harder to heal someone. But as I sat with it more, I started to wonder, is he actually saying the opposite thing? Now there's only one that can forgive the brokenness between me and God, and that's God. Only one being in all of creation. It's God. He's the only one who can forgive sin. There's been prophets in in our history that have healed those with miraculous power. There's been times in our own experience where God has has come through with, with a healing miracle. But there's only one that forgives sins. All of that's through God's power, but there's only one that forgives sins. I think the comment that Jesus is making, it is incredibly hard for the brokenness between me and God to be repaired. But I can do it. I can do it, and I'm the only one that can do it. And he goes on, he says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has what? The authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, and here we go, the command at the center of this passage, I tell you, come on, everyone, I tell you. That was nice, a bit of force there, I love it. Take your mat and go home. Now immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. And listen to this. I love this as a picture for what it means to be alive in Christ. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. Isn't that just a picture of what the church should be? We are amazed by who you are, God, and our response is to give you praise. We're amazed by your provision in our lives. We're amazed by your grace in our lives. We're amazed by your glory, your majesty. And God, we give you praise. They're filled with awe and said, we've seen remarkable things today. I love this story. Anyone heard this story before? It's a good story, right? It's, it's awesome. Now, when I read this, when I spend time in this passage, I actually see two plot lines. I see two stories, and they both converge on Jesus at the center. Now, the first plot line is that of need seeking provision. We've got our four friends carrying their paralyzed friend. Need seeking provision through an encounter with Jesus. Now, what I love about this story is that they're operating with an absolute faith and an absolute certainty that if we can simply get our paralyzed friend into the presence of Jesus, he will be healed no matter what. That's awesome. So their need 
comes seeking provision in Jesus. Now, there's another storyline here as well. Now, at the very start of this passage, we learn about the Pharisees, that they've gathered as well to hear from Jesus. You know, during the public ministry of Jesus, there was around 6,000 Pharisees operating throughout the surrounding areas where Jesus was doing his ministry. And they too had gathered, not seeking an encounter of provision, but coming with the authority they had seeking to control what Jesus was talking about. We're going to pick up that thread a little bit later, and we're going to focus on the first. Need seeking provision through an encounter with Jesus. This is the heart that they have, that I want to experience Jesus in such a way that the needs of my life would be met in his provision. So here's the desire they have, to have an encounter with Jesus. Now, any desire to encounter Jesus will always begin with the same thing, intention. Intention. And we see that in these guys as well, that it begins with intention. They came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and their intention was to encounter Jesus that he might be miraculously healed. That was the intention that they were operating with. You know, intention's a funny thing. I, uh, I bought a house a little while ago, and you know when you do a final inspection through a house and look at all the things, that you know, make sure everything's legit? Anyone done that before? Come on, Goman says you've done that. And you, you go through, and you, you're kind of looking out for things that might be a bit busted. And I remember the, the house that we decided to buy, going into the bathroom, and there was some water damage around the window. And it was kind of, it was cracked, it was a little bit soft, it was kind of puffering out a little bit. And, and I looked at it, and I thought, that's no big deal. Once we move in, I'm going to fix that. It was my intention that as soon as we moved in, like first weekend, I'm going to fix that wall. Guess what? It's still my intention. My intention is unchanged. I'm going to fix that wall. The wall also is unchanged. Actually, that's not true. It's kind of worse now because, you know, over time, water damage tends to, you know, do its thing and, and get worse. And it's still my intention to this day as I stand in front of you this morning, I fully, completely, honestly intend to repair that wall. Some wives here. He's just like you. <laughs> sorry, is that too, too judgmental? No, sorry. So we have a problem with our intentions translating into action. Now, here's why I think we have that problem. It's because any intention that we have will always face some kind of opposition. Any intention we have will face some kind of opposition. And we see it in this story. They come with the intention of encountering Jesus, their opposition. Anyone remember what it was? The crowd. It was the crowd gathered all around them. So they come seeking to encounter Jesus. And they're like, whoa, there is a crazy, intense crowd all around Jesus right now. Remember, they're holding their friend on a mat. Their forearms are probably starting to burn a little. Who knows how far they've traveled to get to this moment? Now, if they face that opposition and let the opposition determine the outcome, they might have said something like this. Gee whiz, I can't see an opening here. There's people, there's people all around. You may remember, there's a special anointing. Luke recalls, records that on Jesus' life to heal the sick, everyone's coming with their need, kind of queuing around Jesus to be healed, to hear what he had to say about the kingdom of God. There's this incredible crowd. It's like, boys, this just isn't our day. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get up early, early tomorrow. We're going to find out where Jesus, his crew are staying. And we're going to go there first thing in the morning. We're going to have another shot at this tomorrow. 
the opposition to their intention won. But that's not what happens in this story, isn't it? These guys get a little bit crazy. They say, okay, we've got a problem. We've got some opposition to our intention to get to Jesus. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to dig through the roof. And the guy back here is like, yeah, wait, what? We're going to dig through the roof. We're going to get a rope. We're going to lower him down. They operated with urgency. Now, intentions become action where our intentions become urgent. That's the difference. So here's a great question for us. In our experience of faith, in our journey of faith, if we have a similar desire in a different context to encounter Jesus and the fullness of His provision in our lives, we need to ask this question, what's my opposition? What's my opposition? Remember, any intention we have, there's going to be opposition from somewhere. What's the opposition in my life to encounter and know more of who Jesus is? The first that I think is common to all of us and also (laughs) comes out of this story is this whole idea of the tension between what is important in our lives and what is urgent in our lives. Anyone heard this before? They kind of wrestle between important and urgent. Now, it's funny, the things that are urgent in our lives, they become urgent because of all kinds of different reasons. Because somebody else in our world says, this is urgent. This needs to be urgent to you. Okay, this is urgent. i got to go in this direction because this is urgent. Whereas there's a lot of important things in our life that often there aren't external, there are not external forces moving those important things to a place of urgency. So if we want to break through the opposition to the desire we have in our heart to know more of Christ leading in our life, we've got to ask ourselves the question, how urgent is the desire in my soul to know more of who Jesus is? How urgent is the desire in my soul to move from stationary as a person of faith to moving in the fullness of the beauty and purpose that God has for my life? For a lot of us, it's important. Yeah, that's really important. That's important for my life. The trouble is there's seven to 12 things that are more urgent on any given day. Now, if our friends in this story can teach us anything... How can we become more urgent in our pursuit of who God is? Great question for you to reflect on this week. But you know, there's something else as well that I, that I see coming out of this passage as I spend time with it. And I think about the opposition that this guy faces in his desire to pursue Jesus and know his provision in his life. And it's at this point where we're going to pick up our second plot line in this story. Not need-seeking provision, but power-seeking control. We're going to have a conversation about the Pharisees for a moment. So they'd gathered from everywhere to come and see Jesus, to come and hear what he was all about. Now, here's something you've got to know about the Pharisees. We've probably got some different pictures about who they were. Now, one of the fundamental things about how they operated is this. They hated sin. They hated sin. And that's not necessarily a, a negative starting point. They hated sin. Now, they were also in a position of a religious authority where they could bring shape to the way that people saw themselves in relation to God. Now, they hated sin. So here's what they did. They would take the, the law that they had, which was, was basically gave them the, the boundaries for what was falling short of God's calling and what wasn't. And they hated sin so much that what they did, they would create a behavioral hedge around every one of their commands. So say, for example, one of the commands would be, do not use the Lord your God's name in vain. 
So then they would create an additional behavioral barrier around that command, and they said, we will not use God's name at all. See, see how they're operating here? So they actually make the command more difficult because they're so afraid of sin. That's how the desire started. But what it ended up producing in the lives of people was a faith and expression of connection to God that became all about the letter of the law rather than the heart in which the law embodied. And this became a real big thing in the culture that Jesus lived in. It was this whole wrestle between what it meant to be a sinful person, what it meant to, to live within the boundaries. You know, one of the really horrible things that, that flowed out of this religious culture that was supercharged with sin and, and rules and, and the letter of the law is that they started to, to believe a really broken and pretty horrible kind of theology or thought about how they connected with God. And it was this, that, that if someone showed up to work with a flu, let's say I'm a fisherman. Last two nights I've been working through the night out on the Jordan, getting my nets out there, getting it done. But it's been cold the last two nights, and now I've got the sniffles. Hopefully no one's got the sniffles here this morning. But I've got the sniffles. And everyone does the thing, oh, Phil, you've been fishing the last two nights. You got kind of cold. You've been wet for 48 hours. That's why you've now got a cold. Here would be a fairly common thought process in the world that Jesus lived in. Oh, Phil's got a flu. There must be some sin in his life that would cause God to punish him in that way. Ooh, I wonder what, well, the flu's not terrible. Maybe he just told some, you know, lies to someone or something. And this would literally be the thought process. So let's imagine you don't have the sniffles. You're paralyzed. You're paralyzed. People walk past you in the street. Ooh, I wonder what sin is in his life that God would punish him in that way. Terrible, broken theology. I just really want to make sure, make sure that sinks in. I wonder what sin is in his life. I wonder what sin was present in the life of his family. And it flowed out of this culture where sin became so powerful. And you know what the currency of the Pharisees' authority was? It was shame. It was shame. The desire that they had at one point to pursue this life of holiness became this prescription of shame over people's lives. This is the way we got to live or we're going to be shamed because of it. So then isn't it interesting? The paralyzed man comes down through the roof, laid at the feet of Jesus. Remember, he's come with need seeking provision. All of his friends are up there like, <gasps> expecting that Jesus is going to miraculously restore his body so that he can walk out of there. But the first thing that Jesus says to him, he breaks the currency of shame over his life. He says, friend, a term of acceptance, belonging, even love. Friend, your sins are forgiven. He breaks the currency of shame. And it's a foreshadow of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. What his whole ministry was all about is removing the cost of sin. This is what Jesus does first on behalf of this man. You know, today we're, we're going to have a little conversation about shame. That sounds fun, right? <laughs> yeah, some light Sunday morning conversation. Now, but here's the reality. We need to be able to have these kind of conversations without crippling under the weight of them. Because it's a part of all of our experience. Guess what? There's sin in my life. There's going to be sin in my future. 
There's going to be experiences of shame that I face. But to help us approach it from the right kind of standpoint, I want to leave an image up on the screens for us just to help us approach this with, you know, a certain lightness in our spirit. Now, who here's got a dog at home? Who's here, who here has a dog that occasionally makes a mistake? Anyone? Some of you are just like, no, my dog is perfect. Now, one of the things that I love about dogs is that they have the capacity to feel shame. <laughs> Look at him. Who knows what he's done? But if a dog, if he eats your shoe, if he goes to the bathroom somewhere he shouldn't, what's the most annoying thing Mellow's ever done? Have you got like a run? If they run away, oh, it's so annoying. You've got to go out into the street on your scooter and try to catch him. And then when you finally get him, you're met with this kind of face. <coughs> you're like, how can I stay mad at you? Now, I've got a cat. Cats do not have this same emotional capacity. They're a little hungry. They find a glass on top of your table, and it's like this. Yeah, yeah, cheers. And they just stare at you. Yeah, what? That's what's up. Any cat owners here? And we still love them anyway. What's wrong with us? You know, a little while ago, I, I, I get to do something really fun on Thursdays. It's my day off, and I get to look after, look after my boys for the day. And my oldest son, Caleb, he goes to kindy now, which is really cool. And on a Thursday, my, my wife goes to work early, so I get everyone ready for school. And on this particular day, as we were, were getting ready, I was like, hey, buddy, what do you want to wear today? And I should forward that by. He's, he's got a uniform, but there's some variations in what you can choose. And I said, what do you want to wear today? And it's like, He's like, I want to wear my yellow shirt. I was like, awesome, yellow's a great color. And so we put the yellow shirt on, puts his shorts on, gets his kindy shoes. Oh, he's looking good. He's looking fresh, ready to go for an awesome day of kindy. And then we, we get in the car, get everything organized, pack all the lunch, all the stuff you do as a high-functioning dad. <laughs> and we get to, to kindy. Actually, before we get to kindy, we're driving. And I, I notice for the first time, and I actually think about the weather for the first time on that particular day, and I, I'm reminded of the weather because now it's raining as I'm driving my car. Actually, it was more of a light sprinkle. It was, you know, it was just pitter-pattering lightly. And I'm like, oh, it's raining. Okay, boys, when we get to school, we're going to run to Kindy Green. That's it. That's his classroom. We're going to run. It's going to be so fun. And it was. We ran all the way into his classroom. We, we get in, and you get to do some fun stuff before the bell goes. And then when the little bell goes, all the kids kind of sit in this little circle, and, and they have their kind of, I don't know what they do after that that's when I say goodbye but what I could see on this particular day my son's sitting there in his shorts in his yellow t-shirt and I realized for the first day that morning first time that morning is this kind of freezing and I look around the circle my kids got this really cool bright yellow t-shirt every other kid's got their dark blue track pants and school jacket on Literally every other one. And as I'm leaving, my son's kind of like this. He had a huge smile on his face though. So I was like, I kind of felt a little torn. But can I say, this was the first time in my life where I've experienced public parental shame. <laughs> I was like, I just got to get out of here. There's going to be some overconfident, passive-aggressive mom that's just going to be like, oh, Phil, is, is this jacket in the wash? Like, Shannon, I don't even know where his jacket is. I just got to get out of here. And I got out of there, and I'm driving home with this deep sense of shame. Oh, my kid's going to be so cold. Fortunately, hey, he has an amazing kindergarten teacher that attends our Malaloo campus, and she got him uh, a jacket for the day. So that was, 
That was nice. So, so we kind of know, right? We know what shame feels like. Sometimes we feel it based on our own decision-making. Sometimes we feel it based on no decision of our own, and it's just broadcasted onto us, and it's a horrible thing. Sometimes we too can be the ones that give and apportion shame to others, and we need to think about that as well. But we know what shame can feel like. We know what it can do in the place of the heart and the soul. And I see a picture of shame as we've talked that's at the center of this story as well. And Jesus breaks that currency of shame. He breaks the currency of shame. Now, the reason the Pharisees, they, they, they spaz out. Anyone else use that expression? There's a, a new one for you to add to your diction. They, they, they freak out because they recognize what Jesus is doing. He's taking away the currency of their religious authority. And he's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have the authority to forgive sin. And in that moment, he breaks that currency of shame over this guy's life. I invite the team to, to come back and join us, and we're going we're gonna to finish with an awesome song today. But I want to give you a final picture as we, we wrestle with this idea of shame and the impact that shame can have on the way that we relate to our God. Now, when I think about my own life, I think about it like this sometimes. See, anyone a fan of boxing here this morning? It's probably not a huge boxing crowd here on a Sunday morning. But, but yeah, thanks. I, uh, I, I don't super like boxing, but I super love the Rocky movies, so I know a bit about boxing because of that. And one of the things that happens in boxing, if, if, you, if you take a shot, Southpaw like Rocky. Southpaw's left, right? Is that right, Ryan? He's up with him, Brad. Southpaw? Yeah, good. You take a shot and you get knocked down. Your back hits the canvas. And then in a boxing match, does any, anyone remember what happens next? What does the, the referee start doing? Count. There's a 10 count. So if you take that shot, you fall down. The referee starts with his count. Whoa! And he's usually really over dramatic, right? He goes down with two, three. <laughs> and he does his count. And if it gets all the way to 10, what does that mean? You're done. No chance of victory. Victory's gone. You're on your back. Match is over. You're defeated. Now, sometimes, here's what I think sin can feel like in my life, and maybe you've had a similar experience. That you make a decision, and you're like, oh, and it just feels like a shot to your heart and to your soul. You end up on your back. And it's almost like that, that 10 count begins. And there's a voice that comes along that 10 count. And it's that voice of shame. This is where the power of sin lives in us. It's the shame that we feel about it. And if we keep listening to that voice, that count keeps going. So I make that, that mistake. I'm hit with that pain, that loss, and attitude grows within me that's not good. I make a bad choice, I hit the deck. Count starts. One, Phil, why are you like this? Two, imagine if your friends knew you were like this. Three, why do you keep trying? Just stay down. Four, 
Why can't you be like the other people you see in your life? Five, do you really believe that God loves you? Six, do you believe that God could really redeem you time and time again? Here you are again. Seven, sure, keep coming to church, but don't engage with it in the level of your heart because this is where you belong. Eight, can Jesus really redeem you, Phil? Nine, just forget about your Savior. 10, He's forgotten about you. Just stay down. And the victory that Christ died for is all but lost in my life. Now what if when Jesus stood over that paralyzed man and broke the currency of shame, and what if what Jesus did on the cross was actually silencing the voice of shame in my life. It was silencing the voice of shame in your life. So that now, when I take a shot, guess what? There's gonna be sin in my future. I'm sorry. That's the kind of pastor I am. There's gonna be sin in my future. There's gonna be sin in all of our futures. But guess what? When that day comes and we take that shot because of what Christ did on my behalf, the count sounds different. It doesn't start at one, counting up to 10 where I'm eliminated and the victory's lost. It starts at 10 and it's counting down to one, to, I real, to the moment where I realize that His grace has made it as if I never took that shot in the first place. And guess what? When we believe that about Jesus, when we get taken down, the count's reversed, the voice of shame is silenced, and there's a new voice in our corner. There's a new voice in our corner. 10, Phil, I know this hurts, but I lead you beside still waters. Nine, Phil, it's time to get up. I restore your soul. Eight, remember Phil, my spirit brought you into adoption, in sonhood, in daughterhood. You are a co-heir with me. He's your father, get up. Seven. Whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's just, whatever's holy, whatever's pure, Phil, think about those things and get up. Six, remember you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Five, remember Phil, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Four, Phil, take hold of the strength that I have for you and get up. Three, Phil, I'm convinced that neither heights, nor depths, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything in all of creation can separate you from me. So what are you doing on the floor? Get up. Two, Phil, my power not only resurrected me, it resurrected you. Now get up. One, not for one moment were you forsaken. Not for one minute were you forsaken. Get up. It's time to move. It's time to move. Here's what you need to know once and for all. The power of shame is broken over your life in the name of Jesus. It's broken. And today, the voice of shame needs to be silenced. Say, Jesus, you took away the currency of shame. 
I believe that. You took away the cost of my sin. I believe that. There's going to be sin in my future. That's okay, because Jesus, you're my provision. But there's also a command. Jesus looks down and says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Shame, it's done. But then the command comes. Yo, it's time to get up. Time to start living the way I created you to live. Not stuck, not stationary, but a life of motion, beauty, passion, and influence. Get up to who I've called you to be. Can we stand together here this morning? Yeah, I wanna pray for you right in this moment. And if you're here this morning and you know that it's time to get up, if you're here this morning and you're having a, a fresh revelation of the grace that is apportioned your life, if you're here this morning and the voice of shame needs to be silent, I'd love you to just raise your hands all over this place and we're gonna pray through the authority of Jesus that any voice of shame will be broken and only the voice of strength, joy, encouragement and provision would be heard in your life. Let me pray. God, I wanna thank you that your Holy Spirit is here in such a real way, Lord. God, we wanna thank Thank you that Jesus stood over a young man and said, you are forgiven. The power of shame is broken. The currency of shame is broken. And Lord, we declare and claim that same promise that Lord, you have the authority to forgive sins. God, I pray that we would know that in the deepest place of our heart, the deepest place of our soul, that Jesus, it is time to get up because your presence has renewed and restored and now commands. Get up off the mat. Come on, it's time to get up off the mat. No more sucking in oxygen down there. Remember, it's my breath in your lungs. Get up. It's time for more. Get up. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring increase over, over, over every life here this morning, Lord God. God, I pray that there would be new motion, that there would be new beauty, that there would be new influence, that there would be new creativity, that, Lord, our lives would take on the movement of your Spirit. We praise you, Jesus. We're gonna sing the words of that song, not for a minute, not for a moment was I forsaken. We're gonna sing that together. And I wanna just give you this opportunity. If this is a real moment for you with your intention to encounter Jesus, you need to push through some opposition. I wanna invite you, come to the front. As we declare these words, come to the front. I wanna pray with you. Michelle wants to pray with you. I'm not gonna spit on you. And we're gonna pray that God would do something powerful in your life here this morning. So we're gonna sing these words, we're gonna declare these words. If you want someone to pray into your life, you come to the front. Come on, let's praise.